Hi everyone, Josh from the Narrate team here. This week, Adam asked the questions, what if indigestion is far more dangerous than starvation? And did Jesus have a not-to-do list? So really my job this morning is to get out of the way and give you a chance to celebrate communion. Uh, but I want to kind of prepare us for that. And I want to do so by that, that card in front of you represents everything that I want to try to get you thinking about this morning. If this weekend goes down to live in infamy, it'll be because it's the weekend that Adam killed Narrate. Uh, because ironically, and being a part of a movement and an organization that is constantly saying, like, we would love for you to come alongside and serve us, and we're only going to be as great as we have people willing to do that. My goal this morning is to get you thinking about what you need to, what you need to stop doing. I want to get you thinking about your not-to-do lists. Uh, and, and to do that, um, the first story that came to mind for me this week, I, I have this vivid memory of standing with my grandpa Bill at 2521 Broadwater Avenue in Billings, Montana, just a block away from Softies, for those of you local to the area. I mean, we got Big Dipper and they've got Softies. Uh, it was a house that he had lived in for almost 40 years. He and my grandma raised four kids in the house. We were standing in the garage and we were looking at all his stuff. I mean, you've lived in your house for three years and you can't figure out how you'd ever move out. He'd lived in this for almost 40 years. And I wouldn't call him a pack rat uh, only because he was organized in his pack rat nature. Like he, like many of our grandparents, was very connected to the Great Depression and all that came with it. So he was the type of guy who never threw anything away. He took his garbage out in one of those like grocery garbage bags because really the only thing that was garbage in his head was very few select things because margarine containers and coffee cans and all that stuff served a purpose at some point at some time. And so we were standing in his garage and every nook and cranny was full of stuff, but it was, but it was organized stuff, cardboard and carpet and all this stuff he might use someday. And, and in, his, in his defense, he could still park two cars in his two-car garage. So how you doing? This is level the playing field here. I can park zero in my two-car garage. But, it was, but you had to kind of get out the door sideways and get out of the car this way as you exited. The, so we're looking at his stuff. And he had lots of stuff. In fact, I, an, another memory I had this week was when I was about eight years old, I got to spend every other Friday night at their house because my sister and I fought, so we had to take turns. And, and he had a simple split-level house with a mostly unfinished basement and a finished upstairs. And next to the stairwell as it came down, there was a finished bedroom and then an unfinished laundry utility room. And I remember him taking me down there one day, and it was literally this like step behind the hot water heater and oh, don't trip over the furnace. And then we were opening up this drape, and we found ourselves under the stairwell, and he pulled on this light, and it was like something out of Pixar. It was like Narnia. Because in this little tiny triangular space, he had crammed and organized every remaining thing he had from his four children's growing up years. All there. Board games. And what was that like pre-LED light thing where you stick the light in and like make a banana? Uh, light bright, like a light bright. One of those things and an erector set that didn't have any screws and all kinds of just random miscellaneous stuff. And it was kind of like, well, have fun. See you later. Leave it better than you found it. And we called it as kids, we called it the hole. And be like, if grandpa's in a good mood, grandpa, can we go in the hole? Yeah, go in the hole. So you'd go and just spend hours in there discovering these games that didn't work and the batteries had melted in any way and that kind of a deal. So over time, you get bored. And one day I was digging around, convinced there was something in there I hadn't yet discovered, right? And I pulled these board games off and deep in the bowels of the shelf, I, I saw this. It was a purple velvet bag. It's about that tall. Had this gold, gold-like edges on it, this, this embroidered crown and these two words and this drawstring at the top. And I reached back there and I grabbed this 
this velvet bag, and it felt like it weighed a thousand pounds. And I'm thinking, I am the hero of all hushkas because I just found this hidden gold that Grandpa didn't know was here. <laughs> Pulled this thing forward, opened it up, and it was full to the brim, not of gold, but of quarters. I mean, just to the max, full of quarters. And I still went barreling out of there, convinced I had just found these, I don't know, millions of dollars that nobody knew was there. And I was, Grandpa, Grandpa, you got to see what I have. And, and I showed him, and, and he was horrified. What I would later find out is there was stuff like this all over his house. One day I found one, it was all full of silver dollars. Another day, all full of 50-cent pieces. My grandpa was a classic high school educated, uh, hardworking. He worked for the airline industry. And, and he had this motto. I don't follow the motto, but his motto was... Uh, uh, if you have cash, you never put cash in the bank. Like that is the dumbest thing you could ever do. Like it goes under floorboards and in crown royal bags and it goes anywhere, but you never put it in the bank. So he just crammed stuff everywhere. So anyway, so here I was standing in his garage. I was, I think 20 at the time. I was looking up at this attic and there was this attic that I was never allowed to go into. Still don't understand why we're in the garage. There was this ladder and could never go up there. It was crammed full of stuff. And we were looking at all this stuff because he had just bought, I never thought he would do this, but he and my grandma had bought another house about a mile from this one. It, lived, it was on the same block as one of, uh, one of their kids. And so he was having to move. And we're looking at all this stuff. And he was a very funny man. And he just said, I tell you what I need. And I'm thinking like a U-Haul, a team of 10,000 people. He said, I tell you what I need. I need a really good fire. <laughs> because he was willing to admit he couldn't part ways with it, but he probably should. That's what I want to explore this morning. Like, you've noticed, right, that, that more is always better, that less is always worse. And I don't think I have a new idea to explore this morning, but I want to get you thinking about what if it's really true that, that from a productivity, from a who am I called to be, from a what kind of life am I trying to live level, what if it's true that indigestion is far more dangerous to your health than is starvation? What if, what's, what if what's far more likely to knock you off the route that you and her or you and him or you and your 18 or whenever, whatever it was when you enrolled in college, what if an abundance of opportunities that become mandates because you consider them mandates, what if that's the real danger? Now, if this is home for you, you know that I, I, I really enjoy a guy named Jim Collins in my mind, he's one of the greatest thinkers uh, alive in, in our world today. He, he used to be a professor uh, in the MBA program at Stanford. Now he's this private consultant. He's written several books. This summer, in this process of like, okay, Lord, what needs to go? What needs to go? What needs to go? I picked up a few of his books. Don't be impressed. I get paid to read. You don't. Uh, but I um, pick, picked up a few of his books and kind of reread these few books. And, and one, of them, uh, w- one of them is this book called How the Mighty Fall. And in How the Mighty Fall, I think here's where what applies to a company applies to an individual. He wanted to know, like, how did Circuit City go from the best consumer up, um, electronics store to out of business? What happened to HP? What happened to Motorola? What happened to Rubbermaid? He wanted to know these companies who were at once national, if not international leaders, what happened? Well, one of them, there were 11 total. One of them was Rubbermaid. He, t- he tells a story of a time when these two executives went to England. They visited this, this particular museum with a very extensive Egyptian exhibit. And they later bragged when they came out of the Egyptian exhibit that they left that exhibit uh, recognizing that the Egyptians had a lot of creative ideas for kitchen utensils. And that they left that exhibit with, with 11 new product ideas. 
Now, that might sound like a lot, but not when you take into account that in this season of Rubbermaid's existence, their, their cultural organizational MO was that in order to win, the win for them was to release one new product every day, 365 days a year. You think your boss is hard to work for. In a span of three years, they really released over a thousand new products. And of course, he was studying, studying them because in the, in the 90s, they cratered. And he wanted to know why. And what he found was a theme. They choked on their own innovation. See, you would think at first glance, like when you see an artist or, or an organization, a company, an individual, that, that used to be great and doesn't anymore. Like think of the, the vanilla ice, maybe. <laughs> you think, what happened? And the default thinking is to think that they started to rest on their laurels, that they got lazy, that, that they stopped, they just started to spend their money in the Bahamas. But what he found is that's true of three of the 11 companies. Three of the 11 companies failed uh, for, for, for not having any new ideas. The other eight, they choked on their ideas. In other words, three times, almost three times more likely to fail for having too many ideas, too many opportunities, than not enough. I, I brought a few examples. Uh, Motorola, from 1991 to 1995, increased their patents from 613 to 1,016. That put them in first place by over 400 patents in their field. Uh, Merck, which is a pharmaceutical company, from 1996 to 2002, uh, they released 1,933 new compounds for drugs. Um, <clears throat> HP, in the 90s, had their invent campaign, and in two years, doubled the number of patents that they had applied for. All of them failed. Which gets me asking this question, not if you're successful, but how are you managing your success not as there are people who are asking things and demanding things and observing that your company, your, your, you have this skill, but, but how are you saying no? You know, if you were to hire Jim Collins, I'm guessing that's six figures. And if your company hires him, let me know, because I would love to be a fly on the wall. But if you were to bring him in as a personal coach or personal consultant, I've heard him say this several times in several different resources. He feels the most important question he can ask you and the most important question or the, the question that's most indicative to a person's long-term success is not their to-do list. It's their not-to-do list. Their ability to discern every year like, okay, I used to work for a guy who used to say, every opportunity is not a mandate, Adam. Every opportunity is not a mandate. H- how are you doing? And see, what I love about being a person who, who trusts in this thing that we call the Bible and the God who it represents is that this isn't a new idea. God has been warning people about this from the very beginning. From the very beginning, he's going, if you're getting here, there's going to be lots of pain. And that pain isn't an absence of opportunity. It's an abundance. In fact, there's one leader in particular that I think if his story unfolded today, he'd be speaking at all the leadership conferences. He'd be on all the magazines. It'd be his books that we'd be writing. He'd be teaching MBA classes at at Stanford because he went from nothing to everything, apparently overnight. It wasn't overnight, but that's what our culture likes is overnight success stories, and they're seldom true, but his could easily be painted as such. He went from having no soapbox, no audience, no platform, no influence, to, to his influence rivaled the influence of the, the, the uh, most influential person in his region. His name, of course, was Moses. And Moses, uh, he found himself with over a million people clinging to his every word. He was successful. People wanted to know what he had to say. And I think Moses did what probably many of us would do in this instance. 
he invited his father-in-law, one of the most influential people in his life. You might not say that. Just checking to see if you're awake. But this was the guy who scooped him up. This was the guy who, when he had nothing, taught him a new trade. He invited this guy Jethro to come pay him a visit. And while there, Jethro watched him do his deal. And I got to think that Moses is just like you and I. The, the Bible tells us he's the most humble man to ever live. So I don't think it was arrogance, but I do think there must have been a part of Moses going, boy, this guy who spent his whole life pouring into me and paying for my stuff, giving me piano lessons, hoping that I'd be a productive member of society. This must be a helpful, encouraging moment for him. And at the end of it all, I, I think I like to think of that they were sitting on the patio, having just had dinner, maybe with a beverage in their hand. His father-in-law looks at him and he says this, Hey, I'm Moses. Moses is like, hey, so what'd you think? Dad, like, wasn't that awesome? Jethro says, hey, Moses, what you're doing is not good. Now, parenthetically, if you're going to be that blunt with somebody, there better be a lot of relational capital. I think you're wasting your time, Moses. Oh, you mean like this thing that I've worked my, my guts off for the last few years? Oh, yeah, I think you're wasting your time. And then he goes on to say this, you... And these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. What if there's this God who knows you and the way this human experience happens so well that he's been saying from the very beginning, be careful because your success can lead to your downfall. Indigestion can take you out. We did a series this last winter called We Need You to Lead. We talked in there about Jesus' ability to will the one thing. And so I don't want to revisit all that. But Jesus also had this remarkable ability. Uh, in Luke 6, let's just pick up on one instance. And in Luke 6 says, uh, <clears throat> One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. Now, if we understand prayer the way Jesus represents it, which is not this like, please God, please God, please God, I really need a Harley. Like, that's not the way he prayed. If we understand it as prayer is a reminder that life is about you, not about me, that your will is better than my will, that, that I, I think of prayer as... It's, it's like help I feel, emotional intelligence for what I feel like I have to have in order to be happy. And it's God over the course of prayer going, really, you want my will. You better. Better with that. Now, if that's what happened over the course of the night, that would make sense because look what happens next. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. In other words, Jesus emerged from this night conversation with God, surrounded by, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of people. He has an ego. We all have egos. And he goes, no, 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 yes, no, 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 yes. And then someone raises their hand and they're like, Yes, what, what, do you, what do you need there, uh, Thaddeus? You just picked Judas Iscariot over me. Like, that makes no sense. No, 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 no. Yes. If Jesus can do it, if he can justify doing it, what about you? You know, I talked last week about a guy named Peter Drucker who was a mentor to Jim Collins, and I was told last service that I caffeinated my way through this story too quickly, so I'll try to slow down. But Peter Collins, or Jim Drucker, was, was reached, uh, a Hungarian professor reached out to Peter Drucker, who Peter Drucker had relationship, or didn't have relationship with, but admiration for, and asked Peter if he could perhaps interview him on a study he was doing on creativity. Seems that he respected Peter Drucker, who was this uh, very respected in his day business consultant, kind of the founder of that idea in many ways. 
And Peter Drucker, what I said last week was Peter said, um, people tell me I'm creative. I don't even know what that means. I just keep plodding. And there's that, that's what we talked about last week. But I actually stopped short because in the written correspondence that we have recorded, it actually continues, and it continues with some bluntness. He says, because I'm sure you understand, oh, kind sir, that the key to being productive is keeping under my desk a very large waste paper basket designed for invitations like yours. He says, I have learned that if I'm going to live the life God has for me to live, it'll only happen because I learned to say no far more than I say yes. One guy who I read his book this um, summer called Essentialism, it says, he said it this way, the right no, go ahead, the right no, spoken at the right time, can change the course of history. One of the more influential moments in my life, I was 20, I was dating this brilliant woman named Teresa. I was getting ready to go back to college to get a high school teaching degree, uh, which I have, but I wasn't good enough to teach high school, so here I am. Um, <laughs> I was working for this engineering firm, and this youth pastor in town who I, I'd never even met had, had invited me through a friend uh, to, to intern in their youth ministry. I didn't grow up in church. I, I just had recently met Jesus and was enthusiastic about that. And so it was one of those invitations that it felt like you'd be a, a moron to say no to. You know, like, of course I have to say yes to that. But I didn't feel like I should say yes to that. And so I remember sitting down with my friend Fred, who was a mentor to me at the time. And I know I've told this story, and you'll, I'll tell it again next year. But I remember him looking at me, and, 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 and you know, I, I don't mean to be patronizing, but if you're in your 30s or 40s, you can probably appreciate a young, zealous 20-something with all these ideas and all this want to, and appreciate what he was seeing, and that's what he said in ways I couldn't at the time. But he said, Adam... If I was Satan, you know what I would do? He said, I'd give you 20 good ideas and I'd watch you accomplish nothing. What if, what if the key to getting to becoming the husband, the wife, the parent, living the life that you committed to when you got baptized, what if it requires developing your, your, your no muscle? Like what, what if it requires, and the research would say that if you don't decide this morning, like when this week you're going to work on this, you won't. But what if, what if God is inviting you to sift through all the success, all the clamoring, all the like people are looking to you and they all want your time and inviting you to disappoint some people in the name of increasing your success. Listen, it's September. And if you're, if you're a parent, that's, that's not news to you. It is insane. There's this season we call summer where like life has a sustainable pace to it. And then September hits and, and your kids have their own lives and you're driving the shuttle bus or, or maybe, maybe kids are out of the house. But like even business ratchets up, doesn't it? What, 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 do, you need to, what do you need to prune? Like what, what might need to go? What, 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 what is God going like, uh-uh, not the priority anymore? What, what, what might that be for you? You know, there's uh, some observations that I, I think we can make from, from what Jesus says in Luke 6 that are all, all the more important. Because if you're going to do this, and if you're going to carve out some chair time to really do this work, uh, there, there are just a few guiding things from Luke 6. First of all, just an observation, but notice that Jesus' list was informed by solitude and silence with the Father. This wasn't a godless thing. And as much as I joke, like this could be the weekend we kill narrate, I hold out hope that, that if, if we're Christ-centered, then 
than not. And that doesn't even mean that there won't be some hard no's. It just means that, that, that these decisions are made first and foremost out of silence and solitude with the Father. Second of all, notice that, that for Jesus, his list was formed out of surrender to the Father. This wasn't a what do I really want thing. This was a God, what do you really want from me thing. I like to think of Luke 6 was an ongoing conversation Jesus was having with God because it took time for Jesus to go, okay, Lord, so I know there's got to be 12 because there's that number 12 and that's really important to you and there's this tribes of Israel thing and who are they? What does this look like? What does this look like? And third, uh, notice that Jesus, his no list disappointed a lot of people and somehow he was okay with that. Maybe okay is the wrong phrase. Somehow he embraced that. Listen, the only thing I'm trying to get you to consider is what if, what if you set out on this remarkable destination? And what if along the way, being reliable, being productive, being likable, being kind, showing up on time, what if what's attached to you is all kinds of success? And what if, what if what's likely to take you out is far more likely to be that success? than an absence of opportunity. This morning, we're going to give you a chance to take communion. And where I'm excited about communion is, is, is I think that that's where this conversation is framed from, is at the foot of the cross. That, that communion is God's, Jesus' body broken, his blood poured out for us. It's a reminder of surrender. And I guess the degree to which you care to engage in this conversation, my, my hope and challenge for you is that it'll start in a conversation with God. Uh, oh, yeah. Life is about you, not about me. But you, you, you rescued me. I don't live my life to earn your love. I live my life to show gratitude for it. And Lord, what, what, what does this look like? Where is their overgrowth? Listen to a, a guy this week describe how in his 30s he, he led these exhibitions. Uh, they, they were 30 days long where he would take uh, tw- 20-something people on these leadership uh, I- adventures. But one of the rules they had was as they, when they would show up at the wilderness, no trails, no GPS, just topo maps. And what he loved to do is they, they would figure out, okay, where do we want to go? And then they would find waypoints, you know, and they would go like, okay, so we got to keep going towards that, that peak, or we got to keep this stream on our left. And sometimes it would take them days to get there, but they were navigating via the landscape. And he said one afternoon they found themselves extraordinarily lost and he couldn't figure out why they were so lost because he'd never been lost before. Suddenly he realized they didn't even know where their waypoint was anymore. And as he began to consider why, especially over the following days, what he realized was that along the way that day, they happened upon a trail. And by all appearances, the trail was going where they were going. And so they're not dumb. They thought, well, geez, we might as well take this trail. And it was just a single track trail and they followed it. And as they were following what they thought was headed where they were going, it was too late when they realized they were on a path, but it was going somewhere altogether different than where they set out for. Maybe for you, the conversation is, is how do you differentiate progress from, from God's best? I think it was Leo Tolstoy whose commentary and criticism of Western culture uh, was, was that it's like a boat going down a stream and someone says, where are we going? And they, they say, it doesn't matter. We've got progress. Like we're moving somewhere. Who cares where? Maybe for you, this whole conversation is a realization of in the midst of all that busyness, you've confused that for heading to where you set out. 
to the kind of marriage and the kind of parent and the kind of community member and the kind of Christ follower. So yeah, you're selling lots of stuff, but every morning your, your chair sits empty and there's, there's nothing. Remember, Jesus' criticism of the religious people was not, you're lazy. His criticism was, you've got, you're everywhere. You're doing everything right, religiously, home run. And inside, remember he said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look so perfect, and you're at all the social gatherings, and you're at all the proper narrate events, and you're just everywhere. And inside, you're a wreck. Why? There's no, there's no space for God to do the real work, which is the character work. So enough preaching, even though I hope that's not what I was doing. What I want to do is give you a chance to reflect through communion. There'll be elements over here and over here. Uh, There's a smorgasbord of gluten and no gluten and alcohol and no alcohol. We'll let you kind of decipher that yourself. Just know that we're germaphobes, so we dip. We don't sip. And ultimately, it's for Christ followers who go... I'm going to live my life surrendered uh, to Christ. And listen, for some of you, like, like John earlier, uh, to believe in the big claims of Jesus is just too much. It's too much right now. That's okay. It's not a matter of like, I'm going to believe the big claims. You don't will yourself to believing the big claims. Instead, what you can try is to, is to trust his teaching and to apply it and see if along the way he proves to be trustworthy. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. Not just to believe some arbitrary theological facts, but to, to come to the realization that, that he really is the master teacher. And as you see the way his life works, then suddenly believing the tomb was empty gets a whole lot simpler. Let me pray. Right. Lord God, it's not lost on me that what sit in this room are a whole bunch of highly successful people. Successful in their trade, uh, successful in their business, successful in their neighborhood and community and reputation. And God, that quite honestly, we, 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 can't, we can't trust someone else to sort our priorities for us. Jesus, I, I pray that this morning is not a culmination, but the first step in an honest adventure and conversation with you of just discerning, okay, here's who I've become. And how does it look similar to and different from who I've set out to become? Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.